seated. Please join me in 1 Thessalonians, a study we began last Sunday, this wonderful letter to the church at Thessalonica from the Apostle Paul, 1 Thessalonians. At the center of the passage we are studying today is the theme of gratitude, at least it's a very important part of what we find in our passage today. So I thought it would be a good time just to take a moment so that we're all reminded just how God's people ought to be known. We should be known as those who have grateful hearts. Now, in the sermon today, starting in just a moment, I'm going to be utilizing a lot of cross-references, more than normal. I do tend to use cross-references, but I try to limit it to an appropriate amount for a sermon. That is not true today. It is not an appropriate amount. It's a lot. I counted them, and there are uh, about 50. And I have printed them up, just to calm your hearts here for a moment, I have printed them up on a sheet of paper, front and back, and that's available at the welcome desk. So knowing that, you don't have to try to make sure you write down every reference. You can try to get some, but also you can listen to what these verses say, knowing that you can grab that sheet of paper if you'd like to have it, and then look at all those references again. I'm going to start by just giving you 10 verses or so that confirm what I've just mentioned as a note of introduction, and that is we should be known as people with grateful hearts. Scripture prioritizes this theme, and this is just a small sampling of what we find in the Bible. So listen to these about thanksgiving and gratitude. First Chronicles 16.34, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His loving kindness is everlasting. Psalm 86, verse 12, I will give thanks to you, O Lord my God, with all my heart. Psalm 95, verse 2, let us come before His presence with thanksgiving. Psalm 104, verse 4, Psalm 100, verse 4, rather. Psalm 100, verse 4, enter His gates with thanksgiving and His courts with praise. Give thanks to Him. Bless his name. Psalm 107, verse 1. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. The New Testament has the same emphasis. Ephesians 5, verse 20. Always giving thanks, Paul writes, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God. Colossians 3, verse 15. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts and be thankful. Colossians 4, verse 2, devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it. How do we do that? With an attitude of thanksgiving. 1 Thessalonians, this book we're studying, 1 Thessalonians, but chapter 5, verse 18, in everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Sometimes people make appointments with one of the elders to talk through this issue, finding God's will for their life, and whenever I have those conversations, I'm thinking of this verse. Well, this is God's will for you to be thankful, to give thanks for everything. One more, Hebrews 13, verse 15. Through him then, Christ, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is 
the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. So obviously, gratitude is an important biblical theme. What is interesting is that the world also thinks this is important. The world also says that thankfulness is a good trade. It's just that they really don't have an appropriate object. Maybe you've heard this before. I've heard many, many times someone in the world talking about being thankful. You might hear it on a, on a talk show <clears throat> close to Thanksgiving, just people saying, what are you thankful for? Well, I'm thankful for this or that. But many times it's just the idea of a general spirit of attitude, uh, of gratitude. Gratitude not being directed necessarily to anything in particular or anyone in particular, just be thankful as if it's some sort of power that goes out into the universe. But for the believer, when we say we are thankful, we are saying we are grateful to God. Even when we thank another person for something, ultimately in our hearts, we're understanding our gratitude is even to the Lord. Well, as I said, this connects with our passage today because this is what we find in the life of the Apostle Paul and his ministry partners that served alongside him in the city of Thessalonica, we find in them a heart of gratitude. We're going to begin today with 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 2. We won't get all the way through this section, but before we jump in, let me just review what we studied last time when we saw, when we looked at an introduction to this letter, we saw that Paul in Silas and Timothy had successfully ministered in Thessalonica. They had preached the gospel there, and many had come to Christ. Some Jews had converted to Christ. Gentile proselytes to Judaism had converted to Christ. Some pagans had converted to the Lord, and a church was planted there. And these men taught those believers, and over time, the months that they were there, the believers came very dear to the hearts of these three men. But due to some trouble being stirred up by the Jews who resented the gospel ministry in Thessalonica, those three men eventually had to leave the city. But at some point after that, Paul decided to send Timothy back to Thessalonica to check on the church there to see how the believers were doing, and then to bring a report back to him. And Timothy did that very thing. He visited Thessalonica again, saw what was going on, and he brought back to Paul a very encouraging report to Paul who was in Corinth at this time. So from Corinth then, Paul wrote the church in Thessalonica this letter we are studying. And the first thing he conveys to them in the letter is his gratitude for them. Verse 2, we give thanks to God always for all of you. Now, an expression of gratitude like this was a typical element in letters of the day, ancient letters, even in letters written by pagans after the salutation. They might very well uh, put in a prayer uh, to some deity, some pagan deity with a petition that was being made on, on, the, on behalf of the recipient of the letter. In addition, they might also put in a note of thanksgiving to that God or some other God or gods, obviously, their prayers and their words of gratitude fell on deaf ears since pagan gods did not actually exist except in the form of demon spirits. 
but the one true and living God does hear the prayers of praise from his people, thanksgiving, and petition from his people. So Paul expressed his thanks to God for the church. Now, in fact, this was the usual practice of Paul in his letters. When you look at the epistles that he wrote that we have here in the New Testament, he would typically begin his letters by thanking God for the readers. The only exception to that is the letter to the believers in the region of Galatia, what we know as Galatians. He did not put words of thanks in that letter for them. He basically said it's a letter from Paul, and then he launched into confronting them. The apostle was so disappointed in those believers in the region of Galatia because of their quick abandonment of the true gospel. Because of that, he dispensed with his normal words of thanksgiving and went straight to expressing his indignation. But when it came to the Thessalonians, it wasn't that way. Paul was grateful, he says, for all of them. In fact, he kept on being grateful for them, which is confirmed in the present tense of the verb thank. He was continually thankful for them. The adverb always in that verb emphasizes as well this ongoing attitude of gratitude for them. And Paul was not along, alone in that attitude. The pronoun we there includes Silas and Timothy. They were all thankful for these believers in Thessalonica. And of course, as I said, the object of Paul's thanksgiving was God. Paul and his associates were very conscious of the fact that they could take no credit for what had happened in Thessalonica. They understood that it was a God who was at work amongst them. So they were sincerely giving the ultimate credit for the ministry amongst these believers to the one who is always the one behind any true spiritual progress. So right here at the beginning of this letter, we are lifted above the human level of things. From the very beginning of the letter, we're taken away from just a focus, a focus on the horizontal and some sort of mindset about earthly things, things alone. And our thoughts are caused to be placed vertically on heavenly things. Now, with that note of thanksgiving in place, what follows then are three phrases that elaborate on this expression of thanksgiving. And if you look at verses 2 through 4, if you just scan that briefly, you'll find these three terms. They're called participles in Greek. There's one there in verse 2, making mention, or you might have a translation that just says mentioning. Then in verse 3, there's this expression, bearing in mind. Some translations will just say remembering. And then in verse 4, knowing, or we know. Those three phrases begin with mentioning, remembering, and knowing. And they all modify Paul's giving of thanks. So therefore, we're going to tie each one of them back to that. What we have here today and next time are three features of the gratitude that Paul expressed here. Here's the first feature of that gratitude. Number one, the regular occasion of gratitude. The regular occasion of gratitude. The expressions of thanksgiving were not just something rolling around in Paul's heart and mind all the time. They were offered up 
during regular times of corporate prayer that these men enjoyed. Verse 2 says, making mention of you in our prayers. And that phrase, in our prayers, more specifically, means on the occasion of our prayers. We make mention of you on the occasions, these occasions of our prayers. Times of corporate prayer. That's when he gave his thanksgiving to the Lord. That term, making mention or remembering, is commonly connected to prayer in the New Testament. Several verses. Romans 1, verses 9 and 10, Paul writes to the church in Rome, Unceasingly I make mention of you, always in my prayers making requests. Ephesians 1, verse 16, Paul says, I do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers. So here as well, in 1 Thessalonians, Paul was pointing these readers to those times when he and Silas and Timothy and very likely some others had remembered the believers one by one, thanking God for their progress. Now, in this translation I'm reading, I need to jump down to the end of verse 3 because there's a phrase there that actually is connected with this making mention in our prayers. It's the phrase in the presence of our God and Father. One of the other translations does have it connected more visibly with remembering this church in prayer, but it does go with that. The point is, Paul is saying, I made mention of you in our prayers in the very presence of God and our God and Father. That's a way for him to say that these prayers and expressions of thanksgiving were very sincere. They were in the very presence of God that we said these things. So the point is that these authors were persistent in their times of corporate prayer, thanking God. They were diligent in that. In fact, they were fulfilling just what Jesus told his disciples to do in Luke chapter 18, verse 1. The one verse I forgot to put on that sheet that's out there at the welcome desk, I think. Luke 18, verse 1, Jesus told his disciples that they should pray at all times and not lose heart or not give up. Don't give up. Keep praying at all times. Paul took that seriously. And in those ongoing times of prayer with his other men that he served with, they always gave thanks to the Lord. That was the regular occasion of the gratitude that he's speaking about here. But there's a second feature, and this one's so important to us today. Number two, the spiritual motivation for gratitude. The spiritual motivation for gratitude. As Paul and the others thank the Lord for the believers in Thessalonica, he says there was something always going through their minds. There was something always on their thoughts about those Christians. He says it this way in verse 3, constantly bearing in mind. In other words, whenever they prayed about the Thessalonians, there were specific things about them that they always remembered. Now, they likely prayed for many of their practical needs, no doubt. But what they particularly and continually remembered were some foundational spiritual qualities evidenced among the Thessalonian believers. Spiritual qualities that were reported to Paul by Timothy. Timothy telling Paul, listen, there was clear evidence amongst these Thessalonians that they were living to honor the Lord. 
Paul says what they really continually remembered in their prayers was the spiritual progress that the Thessalonians were making. And there are some elements, three elements here, of that spiritual progress that motivated the gratitude. So let's look at them. First of all, number one, their active faith. Their active faith, verse 3. He says it this way, they remembered, constantly bore in their mind, your work of faith. That term work is used here. It's a Greek term that looks specifically at the actual deed performed, the actual good deed, the good work performed, the function itself. Deeds, good deeds flowed out of the Thessalonians' faith. Now, it doesn't say what those deeds were. It's likely a mix of acts of kindness toward others, acts of goodness toward others, acts related to evangelism and calling the lost to repent and trust in Christ, acts where they were performing deeds. They made it clear they were loyal to Christ, even in the face of persecution and hostility. The point is, faith does manifest itself in works, and it manifests itself in many different kinds of works and deeds. The important point is to recognize that saving faith does that. Saving faith is evidenced in works, in deeds, in obedience. Now, we know that's not the same thing as working for your salvation. That idea contradicts the clear teaching of Scripture. Romans 3, verse 20, Paul writes, By the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. There is nothing anyone can do to compensate for their sin problem. Nothing earns merit in the eyes of the Lord when it comes to salvation. No works of the law can accomplish that. And the classic verses on that, I know, are Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. Ephesians 2, verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and even that's not of yourselves, the faith. It's a gift of God. Verse 9, Not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Scripture's clear on that. No works will earn salvation, yet Scripture is equally clear that true salvation will be accompanied by works or as many have articulated it in church history, we are saved through faith alone, but true saving faith is never alone. Meaning that our salvation is made evident in how we live our lives. That's why right after saying those classic words in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 that we're saved by grace through faith and not by works, Paul adds this in the very next verse, Ephesians 2, verse 10. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we should walk in them. When we perform these good deeds because God is the one who is working in us and through us to to do them. Paul says that as well in Philippians 2 verse 13. Philippians 2 13, it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Let me just quickly list a few more passages. Again, they're on the sheet of paper out there if you'd like to have it. A few more passages that confirm this fact that true believers are known for this. They're known for good deeds, good works. 1 Corinthians 3 14, 
If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he'll receive a reward. Ephesians 4 verse 12, this classic verse for pastors and elders that reminds us what our job description is. What are we doing through our teaching? Ephesians 4.12, it says, is for the equipping of the saints. For what? For the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. Colossians 1 verse 10, we're exhorted there. Walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Live a lifestyle that, that honors the Lord to please Him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. 2 Timothy 2, verse 21, we are to repent of sin so that we will be a vessel, he says, for honor and sanctified, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. Later on in the second letter he wrote to Thessalonica, 2 Thessalonians verse, chapter 1, verse 11, to the same group of people, he says, we pray for you always that our God will fulfill every desire for goodness and that God will fulfill the work of faith through you with power. Now, many have questioned or are confused or perplexed by what James says in the book of James. But what James says just confirms this very same reality that though we're not saved by works, works manifest true saving faith. James 2 verse 18. James says, I will show you my faith by my works. Verse 26 For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. Faith without works indicates it's not a saving faith. The fact is, wherever genuine faith is present, good works will also be present. So it's not surprising that Paul here thanked God for this, that when Timothy came back to Paul, Timothy is saying, listen, I mean, they are doing so many good deeds, good works. It's confirming their salvation. They, they take obedience to the Lord seriously. And Paul was thrilled by that, and he thanked God for it. Here's a second element of their spiritual progress. Not only their active faith, but their tireless love. Their tireless love. Verse 3, he thanked God for the labor of love. This term labor is not the same one translated work. This is a different Greek term. It denotes the idea of toiling and laboring, but the point is doing that to the point of exhaustion. In other words, unlike the term which focuses on the deed itself, this Greek term looks at at the effort expended, the, the effort that it takes to accomplish some good deed. And Paul's point here is that love motivates this. And love, this agape love, doesn't stop with just ordinary effort. No, it's a, it's a sacrificial love. It's a love that we would say it goes the second mile. It even goes beyond the second mile with people. It's love that puts forth effort to the point of exhaustion sometimes for the sake of another person, to help someone who's suffering, to spread the gospel. And it's not a love that's just expressed like that toward those that we think are deserving in some way. Not this kind of love. This is not just an emotional response that's prompted by something we like in another person or the desirability of the person being loved. 
I'm not saying emotion is absent from this, not at all, but I'm just saying this is a love that's ultimately traceable to the choice, to the will of the one who loves. This person is determined to love tirelessly. And it doesn't matter what the condition is of the one being loved. So we'll find it expressed in lots of ways. Certainly, the object of this love includes the other believers in the city of Thessalonica. They loved one another. In chapter 4, later on in this book, 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 9, Paul says, Now, concerning the subject of the love of the brethren, the brethren, the loving one another, you yourselves are taught by God to do that. It's obvious amongst you. 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 3 the love of each one of you toward one another is growing ever greater. They were loving one another tirelessly. But Paul exhorts believers to love other believers elsewhere besides just here. Galatians 6 verse 10, he says, Let us do good things for all people, but especially to those who are of the household of faith. There's a priority system here when it comes to our love that we're consumed with this tirelessly loving other believers, others who love Christ. The Apostle John confirms that it is a great need for believers to love one another. He told the disciples in the upper room in John chapter 13, verse 35, that this is how the world will know you are my disciples by your love for one another. Back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Later on, he says to them, also show love to the leaders. So as to the people that they interact with, the brethren, 1 Thessalonians 5.13, esteem them, the leaders, very highly in love because of their work. We're to love one another in the body here. But I got to tell you, maybe the hardest expression of this is something Jesus commented on. Jesus himself added a very challenging point about the love his people are expected to express tirelessly. He taught that we are even to love our enemies. Matthew 5, verse 44. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Perhaps this is where the greatest test comes for this. Maybe it's easy sometimes to love one another. Sometimes it's not so easy. But you get to this, Jesus saying we are to love our enemies. Yeah, that's required. And the point here in 1 Thessalonians is that Timothy had reported back to Paul that you see this in the church there. Amongst the Thessalonians, there was a great spirit of loving self-sacrifice present in that body. So he thanked God for their active faith. He thanked God for their tireless love. There's a third element here of their spiritual progress. He thanked God for their enduring hope. Their enduring hope. Verse 3 says, And steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. This third visible fruit that evoked thanksgiving refers to this aggressive and even courageous Christian quality that is evidenced in every kind of trial and difficulty. Now this term steadfastness is from a Greek word that denotes the condition of staying under something. That's the literal concept of the word, staying under pressure. So it was used to convey the idea then of of endurance, 
perseverance, staying patient in the face of suffering or temptation. So this is obviously closely related to what the Reformers called the perseverance of the saints. What do we mean when we say that, that we believe in the perseverance of the saints? We believe that Scripture teaches that true believers do this. True believers do persevere in something. They persevere in their faith all the way to the end of their lives. True believers will never come to a place of abandoning their faith in Christ. They will never come to a place of denying their faith because endurance, perseverance, steadfastness is evidence of saving faith. That's why Scripture presents it that way, and that's why Scripture even periodically addresses the need for Christians to pursue this. We are told to persevere. For example, 1 Timothy 6, verse 11. 1 Timothy 6, 11. He tells, Paul does his young disciple in the faith, Timothy, flee from sin, but also pursue something. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance. Pursue enduring, Timothy, even in the hardest times of life. Titus 2, verse 2. Something is said here to older men. Older men are those. 69 and older. I'm pretty sure is what what they mean here. I'll change that in about three months. Titus 2 verse 2, older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith, sound in love, and in perseverance. Hebrews chapter 12 verse 1, the Christian life is, is... pictured as a race there, and it says, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. There's even a note about God's sovereignty in your life. He's the one who set the race that you are now required to run. It's been set before you. It may be different from mine or someone else's. Whatever that race is that you've been sovereignly given by the Lord, let us run it with endurance. So Paul was so grateful that the Thessalonians were known for this. They were known for tenacious endurance, even in the face of some extreme opposition and hostility. And that's something mentioned in 2 Thessalonians, the second letter as well. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 4, Paul writes, We ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God because of your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. This is evidence of saving faith. Not only is it faith that's active, it seeks to to live out what we say we believe in tangible ways and do good deeds. It's tireless in its love, its willingness to sacrifice for others. But this is evidence as well, this enduring hope. But I need to add an important point about this steadfastness that characterizes believers, this endurance. It's not a moping around, putting up with life kind of endurance. Eorian endurance, we might say. No, the kind of perseverance Paul is thankful here for does not include self-pity when times are hard. That's almost our default setting sometimes. There, there may very well be moments of discouragement in life. I'm not saying that. Life is hard. But something else kicks in. 
Something else kicks in that causes us to keep going forward. Something else kicks in to cause motivates us to do the next right thing, no matter how difficult the situation is. And it's not something about us particularly. It's not our inner resolve alone. It's not personal strength alone. It's not something even natural to humanness. It's what the Bible calls hope. What inspires this kind of steadfastness is hope. The hope we have, it says, in the Lord Jesus Christ. And a major aspect of that hope is not only hope in the person of Christ, knowing who he is and placing our hope in him, and not only in the work of Christ, but you find it continually mentioned in Scripture in connection with the return of Christ. He's coming back to earth. And as Christians, we we have that hope. We have this persevering anticipation, this enduring anticipation of seeing his future glory someday when he returns in power and glory and he rights all wrongs. And we live forever in his presence. We receive our eternal inheritance. It is this hope that especially strengthens true believers to have confidence even in the difficult times here on earth. And Paul understood it personally. He certainly enjoyed this confidence in his own life. And he knew it was available to other believers as well. Romans 5 says we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. We don't always rejoice in the things themselves that happen down here. But we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. That's a sure thing despite the things that go on down here. Titus 2, verse 13, we look for, it says, we are looking for, anticipating the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. That's why Peter opened his first epistle with an announcement about this. 1 Peter 1, verse 3, it says, we've been born again. God has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Lost people of the world don't have that. They can cope with things. That's the best they can do. But cope and hope are not the same thing. We're born again to a real living hope. And part of that hope is this, verse 4, that this is what's waiting for us. We will obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away reserved in heaven for you. On Wednesday night, starting this Wednesday night, we're We've arrived at our study in the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 21. So probably for two or three Wednesday nights, we'll be looking at the subject of heaven. The new heaven and the new earth and these wonderful promises that go with that. There's no, there are no tears there, no pain there. That's part of our hope. And for these Thessalonians, that hope was something that stabilized them, even in the face of difficulty. The writer of the book of Hebrews presents hope that way. Hope six verse nine, Hebrews 6 verse 19, it says, This hope is something we have as an anchor of the soul. So that our heart and our soul doesn't drift. We have something that anchors it in truth. It's our hope in Christ. And the point of all this is that our hope transcends any kind of just mere wishing 
this is not just human wishful anticipation. It's something that strengthens us to triumph over the very difficult and present struggles of this world. In hope, we look confidently toward the consummation of our salvation. Scripture says that will certainly occur when Christ comes. So ultimately, I could say it this way, our hope is based on knowing that God is sovereign. He's always working out His will. And He's always working things, no matter what it is, for His own glory. He's always working things for the good of His people. We have hope in that, and we know that He's a faithful God who fulfills every promise that He makes to His people, including the promise that He gives eternal life in heaven to those who have trusted in His Son. And what God is doing in the lives of His children cannot be thwarted, will not be thwarted. It will be accomplished. That's the reason Paul says he was so confident in the work going on in Philippi. Listen to what he says in Philippians 1.6. I am confident of this very thing, that you are such wonderful people. He didn't say that. I'm confident of this very thing, that he, God, who began a good work in you, will perfect it. He'll keep it going all the way until the day of Christ Jesus. Nothing stops that. It's steadfastness of hope, and it is evidence of true saving faith. That's why Christ himself said this in Matthew 24, 13, the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. It doesn't say that because of the enduring, God will reward that with salvation. The one who is truly saved will make it evident by enduring to the end. So let's summarize all this. The substance of what Paul and his colleagues remember and thank God for when he came to the Thessalonians is summed up in these three words, work, labor, endurance. But those three terms are connected to and reflect three qualities of Christian character, faith, love, and hope. So think about what all of that represents. That's the summary of the Christian life. That's the summary of what, summary of what it means to be progressively sanctified. We're growing. We are progressing spiritually in these three elements. Doing good works, an active faith, tirelessly and self-sacrificially loving others, growing in that, and growing in the hope that we have in our hearts that helps us endure every trial that comes. Who's responsible for all that? When it comes to sanctification, who's responsible for our, our salvation? Is God responsible for that, or are we responsible for that? And the answer is what? Yes. We're told to pursue these things. We, we have a responsibility to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to work out our salvation and make it evident. But as I read in Philippians 2.13 a moment ago, it is God who is at work in you to will it and to do it, and he gets the glory. Paul thanked God for all this. We're aware, of course, that those three qualities, faith, love, and hope, they occur together combined in other passages, don't they? They're common. Let me give you a few. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 13. But now faith, hope, love, abide, these three, and the greatest of these is love. This book, 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 8. 
Paul says, we have put on the breastplate of faith and love and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. Colossians 1, 4 and 5. Paul writes to Colossae and says, we've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 22. Let us draw near to the Lord then with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. These three Christian virtues summarize the Christian life, and they are expressed in works, good deeds, tireless labor, and endurance, all making it evident that we possess saving faith. And this is what motivated Paul and his co-workers to give sincere thanks to God. There's one more feature of their thanksgiving. We'll look at it next time. It's that third participle, knowing. It starts in verse 4. And likely, very possibly, we'll call this feature number 3, the ultimate basis of gratitude. Well, what can we take away from this today? I mean, that was a long time ago when all that was written. What can believers today take away from this short passage? I'm glad you asked. First, two things here I'll give you. First, our prayers should include expressions of thanksgiving to the Lord. I mean, that's pretty simple and pretty obvious. But it is crucial. It's part of what praying is. And this is important whether we're talking about personal and private times of prayer or we are talking about our times of corporate prayer here in the service or in Sunday school or in care groups. We need to include giving thanks to the Lord. It's important. I'll tell you why it's so important. Here's some reasons. Being grateful gives God the honor he deserves. Because when we express thanksgiving, we are expressing something that is the result of trusting his character, trusting that he is a perfectly wise and perfectly good God. So when we give thanks, we're honoring him, knowing these things about him. I'll tell you something else, another good reason. Gratitude is the solution for something, as opposed to grumbling and complaining. That's the cause of some things. Gratitude is the solution for something. It's the solution for anger and anger's resulting stepchild, bitterness. You see, anger slash bitterness and thankfulness really cannot exist in the heart at the same time. This is a wonderful cure, this thing called thanksgiving. And one more reason why it's so important, why we ought to include thanksgiving in our prayers. A grateful heart makes, us, makes it possible for us to have joy even in the midst of the worst kind of circumstances. The reason is that gratitude acts like a magnet. It's a magnet that pulls us up out of not only the mire of the circumstance itself, but something worse. It pulls us up out of the mire of a self-focus and makes us focus then on the Lord, just like Paul was. 
I mean, even if there's a great burden on your heart that you need to release to the Lord, that you desperately need to give to the Lord, do that. But still, in that prayer, express your gratitude for Him. Do you know we're told to do that? Listen to Philippians 4, 6, and 7. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be known to God. Thank Him for who He is. Thank Him for His attributes. Thank Him for all that He does. Thank Him for what He's going to do in this situation. You say, well, but I don't know what He's going to do. You don't need to. Thank Him for what He's going to do. And you know what happens? Verse 7, And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This is a big breakthrough, actually, for people. To come to a place of so resting in their knowledge of God and His sovereignty and so trusting Him that they can thank God for what is happening, what He is doing in His life through what is happening. So make sure you thank God in your prayers. Second, here's the other one. We should be characterized by these same three traits that the Thessalonians were characterized so long ago. These traits motivated Paul to give thanks for these individuals, but we can put it in a corporate sort of way. These are the traits of a healthy church. Church members who are growing in these three form then a healthy church. So still today, even though we still know we cannot earn salvation because of our good works, still good works verify the reality of our faith today. That's why Paul exhorts us in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. And here's a wonderful promise, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. He sees. Now, obviously, we're not perfect in this. I know that. Personally, I know it. Believers will sometime, sometimes disobey God's commands and, and, and fail to do His will but we repent, constantly confessing and repenting and always aware of something that in the deepest part of our being, we long to obey and we long to do good works. Still today, it's crucial that we love one another. 1 John 3.14, we know that we've passed out of death into life. We know that we're saved because we love the brethren. Still today, we should be those whose hope is settled because that hope still today is what strengthens us to persevere through every trial. So let me leave you with these final verses. By looking at my notes, I can quickly do the math and say that I've given you 45 so far. So here's the final five. I love these verses. I have to go to verse these and others frequently. Psalm 42, verse 5. I could have written this. Why are you in despair, O my soul? Heart, soul, why are you so troubled? He says, why have you become disturbed within me? He knows the answer and he puts it. The answer for it. Hope in God. 
for I will again praise him for the help of his presence. Right now it's hard, but I know I will come to that point. I will joyfully praise him. I know I will. Psalm 130, verse 5. I wait for the Lord. Do you like to wait? Do you like standing in line at Disneyland like for two hours? I don't even like standing in line at the convenience gas stations when somebody's buying lottery tickets because it takes them so long. I've got this one little thing I need to buy, and they're sitting there trying to think through, standing there, all these lottery tickets they're going to blow their money on. And then the cigarettes they want, and then it takes the person about 15 minutes to figure out which ones they've ordered. I'm sorry, I'm just ventilating. (laughs) I have bigger issues in my life than this one, believe me. Pam is constantly, Pam is constantly helping me even when we're traveling at, at the airports or in the mall or it, it doesn't take much for me to, to realize I'm about 20 yards ahead of her, you know, walking and I have to stop and slow down and try to walk slower, wait. It doesn't come natural to a lot of people. But we're told to do that with the Lord, Wait. And waiting in the Bible is not just some sort of ethereal, you know, sort of new agey thing where you're sitting there with your legs crossed or something and pondering something. Waiting is something active because it's the other side of the coin of trusting. So one Psalm 130 verse 5, I wait for the Lord. My soul does wait. And in his word do I hope. Romans 12, 12, rejoice in hope. We don't rejoice because of the tribulation per se. We rejoice in hope. And the next phrase phrase says, persevere in the tribulation. Hebrews 10, 23, I read it already. I'll read it again. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering because he who promised is faithful. If you're here today and you're facing something difficult, some trying circumstance, some perplexing thing, some questioning sort of period of life, then the answer is hope in the Lord, hold fast, endure, be steadfast. So I'll pronounce this blessing upon us here as we close. Romans fifteen thirteen. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this snapshot of what the Christian life really looks like, what a healthy church looks like made up of Christians who look like this. So, Lord, we fail in many ways, and we come confessing. We're so grateful for your mercy, so grateful for your patience and your grace with us, so grateful that you still fulfill your promises and you work out your will. So, Lord, we ask your strength in all this, that we would be more mindful to be grateful to you, even if we don't know what else to say in our prayer, to at least thank you for the God that you are in all you're doing. But, Lord, help us to pursue these qualities so that we'll be known by the same things, active faith and tireless love and enduring hope. I do pray for anyone here who cannot say, 
they're a follower of Christ, open their hearts to believe, to trust in Christ alone for the forgiveness of their sin. In his name we pray. Amen.